Hey, 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 everybody, it's competition time! You said that with such enthusiasm, um, as if it's a regular thing. I have basically spent the last 31 years of my life attempting to become a game show host, Chris, and now it's finally happened. Congratulations. So what are we giving away in this quote-unquote brand new fantasy animation feature? That's right, it's the fantasy animation competition time! Um, Courtesy by the fine people at Intellect Publishing, we have some wonderful prizes to give away to listeners. So the uh, Intellect are the publishers of journals and books across a wide uh, range of kind of topic areas. So if you're interested in the visual arts, if you're interested in film studies, um, kind of cultural studies. Intellect also published stuff, crucially for this network, um, a journal on animation uh, and a journal that we've kind of been thumbing through that engages with issues of fantasy uh, um, called Horror Studies. Yeah. So I'm currently looking, I'm, as I said, I'm, I have it in my hand. I'm currently looking at the um, latest edition of AP3. So this is the journal Animation Practice, Process and Production. Uh, and I can see that it's got articles on the use of animation for autobiography and memory. Um, and really animation's role as a kind of educative tool, how it's being used um, to kind of break down language barriers, how it's being used as a tool to engage with um, adults, perhaps with the learning disabilities, uh, and also animation's relationship to the articulation of mental health on screen. So it's really animation as a kind of communication tool and uh, with a lot of articles written by creative practitioners. And I've got a copy of the recent horror studies, um, and it's got some really interesting stuff on everything from uh, post-humanism in the work of um, Kayoshi's um, Kurosawa's uh, Cairo, um, uh, zombies and viral uh, web things, as well as uh, creepypasta. Uh, who doesn't want to read an article on creepypasta and its nightmarish qualities, Chris? So the crucial question is, what can I, and by I, I mean our listeners, do yeah. to win these prizes? Um, it's very simple. Uh, you can do one of two things. You can either leave us a review on the iTunes uh, store, just giving us a couple of sentences on the podcast, or you can submit a blog post idea to us through the website, that's fantasy-animation.org, and click on the How to Contribute tab. Um, it should be very um, self-explanatory there. So once you've done that, um, all of the names will be put into the proverbial fantasy animation hat. And you've got until about um, February, so early February. Monday the 4th of February is going to be the deadline. Mm -hmm. So if you leave us a review on iTunes, you uh, submit a new blog post idea for the Fancy Animation website. We'll put your names into a hat, uh, and then the winner will be announced on the podcast uh, in the following week. Yes, so stay tuned to upcoming episodes to find out who's won uh, to win a copy of Horror Studies and... Animation Practice, Process, and Production. And I should say that it's been very generous of Intellect to give us copies of these, because I think um, to buy these sort of off the shelf, it's going to cost in the region of, I don't know, 30, 40 quid for the pair of them. And uh, as researchers, we rely on stuff like this. So um, it is a great prize if you want to to claim them. and, and, And... and not too much work to get it. Absolutely. So uh, do do that. Uh, pay attention for the uh, upcoming announcements about it. And um, that's about it. Competition time! Stop that. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year! Welcome to the Fantasy Animation Podcast for 2019. Yes, we are uh, We are into the new year. And we've got a whole roster of interesting and exciting things that talk about the relationship between fantasy animation. So we've got a long uh, and exciting 12 months ahead, I think. Fantasy-animation.org, Twitter, Fan Anim Research, Facebook, Fantasy Animation. Let's get the conversations rolling this year. But for now, sit back and enjoy the show. Moana, make way, make way. Moana, it's time you knew. The village of Motunui is all you need. The dancers are practicing. They dance to an ancient song. Who needs a new song to show one's glory? This tradition is our mission, and Moana, there's so much to do. Don't trip on the terror route, that's all. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, uh, with myself, Alex Sargent. And me, Chris Holliday. Uh, today, we are uh, journeying to Polynesia uh, to talk about the latest Disney film, Moana. It's interesting that we started the podcast with Snow White, the first uh, yes. Disney animated feature, and now we're doing the most recent... Coco. No, Coco. Uh, uh, classic well, mistake. Classic, classic mistake. And, mistake. And the voice, and the voice that you're hearing there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is our guest for, for this uh, podcast, uh, Dr. Catherine Wheatley, who teaches film studies here at King's College. Thank you, Catherine, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so you've made the classic error immediately. No, uh, Coco the QI is. Sang, uh, <laughs> so Coco is. I mean, it is a Disney Pixar film, but in terms of the Walt Disney classics, like the the, the corpus of feature films. Uh, it is a Pixar film, How although the, the relationship between the two studios has become increasingly blurred and, and stuff, but um, it is the most 
as as of we as we sit here, it is the most recent uh, Disney release. And I also, I should have said we haven't got you on specifically so that we can test your knowledge of <laughs> Pixar and Disney films. But sorry, now for another round of Pixar or Disney. No, yes. but I, actually, I think I think that's an, that's an interesting place to start because I think we're in this this interesting period where both Pixar and Disney are fighting to reclaim some sort of sense of identity when the two things are merging together in the popular zeitgeist. And Moana is an interesting film in what it does with what we might call the classic Disney template. I'm sure Chris is going to tell the listeners all about the problems and virtues of the classic Disney template as discussed in animation studies and how it plays with that and uses and updates. Uh, I guess we should start by introducing our guest Catherine. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I guess if we could start by, we were sort of keen to get you involved in this. Uh, What was it about Moana that drew your interest to the film? Where are you coming at it? And, And I wonder if you could talk to listeners about where you see the sort of uh, relationship between fantasy animation in your film consuming habits, either as a writer, uh, some of your academic work, or indeed just as a fan. Where What's your relationship to the mediums that we're interested in? I mean, as, as listeners may have picked up, I'm by no means a, um, an animation or fantasy expert. Um, and in fact, um, my particular interest in Moana is twofold. I um, mainly, first of all, as a mum of a five-year-old girl, uh, so I saw Moana when it first came out of the cinema when my daughter was three, and I was I was really struck by how um, positive the feminist message of the film is, by how by what she learned from it, and we can go on to talk about that, um, and how it's it's reconfigured some of her thinking about violence at only three years old. Sort of extraordinary, Um, and I was getting quite worried about some of the effects of the other Disney films on how obsessed (laughs) she was getting with marriage and white dresses, for example. Um, And then I found myself last year while I was writing, I was trying to finish a book on Stanley Cavell, the the American philosopher who writes a lot about film, at the same time as both my children had croup, and I was getting incredibly panicky about not writing my book um, and watching Moana probably three times a day. (laughs) <laughs> and, and had this light bulb moment where it seemed to me that the two things came together quite nicely, um, particularly in terms of how they both think about the female voice, which has been an ongoing preoccupation of mine. Um, so, so then I incorporated Moana into my teaching on Cavell last year with kind of varying results. Um, but I think, I think there is something really fascinating in the film. It's the more, and the more I think about it, the more it kind of seems to throw up new layers of meaning, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really rich movie. Um, how did the students find it? Yeah, they seem to okay. enjoy it. Um, Cavell himself actually has a kind of sticky relationship with animation, um, which I haven't quite managed to negotiate. So it's a good way of kind of bringing up that question. You know, like Bazan, he's a theorist that's very invested, at least on the surface of things, in the medium of film and its kind of ontological relationship to reality. So animation, you know, it is, is an animation even a film? That's kind of a question that Cavell throws up but doesn't really answer. Um, and, and neither did we <laughs> in the yeah, seminars. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of the, sort of the narrative of the film and thematically it has a lot of resonances with, again, questions of kind of self-reliance and conformity and, and who educates who. Mm, well, well, I mean, that, that's interesting because the way that animation, or I suppose the way that animation studies thinks about animation is that it can be really useful for exploring lots of different things. And, and, and in this case, uh, really interesting in the way of exploring, exploring the work of particular writers and theorists. And actually, a lot of these writers aren't directly writing about animation or referring to animation or theorizing on animation. And yet, at the same time, they become really rich for thinking about actually the questions that they're asking about the frame, questions of ontology and, and um, I don't know, style, the relationship between style and meaning, actually all of those questions that are being asked by theorists who are in some cases perhaps predating or not even thinking about animation become really useful ways into, in this case, a, a popular Disney feature film that I guess on the surface, if you to use the water analogy, on the surface it's one thing, but actually <laughs> thinking about it in new ways. So that's that's really interesting that animation is, or certainly Moana for you, felt like a really useful case study to mm. to attach with someone like Stanley Cavell, who, again, I, I've only looked at in a couple of, couple of instances, the stuff about the world beyond the frame. Does it make sense to think of the world beyond a painting? No. But we ask similar questions with, with uh, animation. And so, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. The film for you immediately struck as something that could be used to, as a way into thinking about, I suppose, the, the relationship that the film has with broader real world concerns, but also the film as a as a test case for playing out some issues in your research on yeah. Cavell. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of the writing around Cavell tends to fall back into thinking about the same films that he wrote about, mm -hmm. which are golden age Hollywood melodramas yeah. and comedies. And, and Moana actually unlocked something for me in being able to think about you know, the usefulness of Cavell beyond what he himself does with film. And I think there is a lot of value in, in Cavell and in a sort of quite therapeutic way. <laughs> the film is quite therapeutic. Um, and in that way, they dovetail really neatly. Yeah. Well, I suppose so. It's an obviously an animated film, and mm. well, not obviously, but it's an animated film. Uh, it's clearly got an interest for for Catherine with regards to Cavell. Alex, you two of the three people around this table really, really like the film, and I'm not one of those two people. This is, this so, is like the Greatest Showman episode in reverse. I'm getting my revenge. Yeah. By, so, by a water-based <laughs> animation. Exactly. Um, water torture. <laughs> so uh, let's. What fantasy? How how does this film? Where, where are you coming to? Well, what, how are you coming to the film? I was struck by the film instantly. I went to see it at the cinema, and it was one of those. Uh, when one is a fantasy scholar, one feels the need to keep up with the latest fantasy releases. And when one does not have children and is not married, that is difficult to do on the weekends because you look somewhat seedy creeping into the latest screening. So I think I watched this at like 2 p.m. on a Thursday after it had been out for a month. With no witnesses. And there, there were like two people sitting in the back and I was crying like a child throughout it. It had a really visceral reaction on me. And I think uh, for me, I'm still trying to unpack a lot of that, but I think it's got a lot to do with um, its use of Polynesian legends. Um, and the way it sort of draws on a mythology that's very, very outside uh, the Eurocentric sort of folktale thing that we, we're so used to Disney, and actually does it, well, we can get into this. There's, there's an argument as to how faithful it is to it, um, because, it cause arguably, because it isn't really very faithful, but I think I, I, at least, from my very limited perspective on it, find that the way it taps into a lot of resonances within Polynesian culture about collective identity versus individual identity, a relationship with the environment and the, the agency of the environment, all these things are in the movie uh, in a really interesting way that makes it, I think, very different in tone to, to the standard Disney movie. Um, so, I, you know, I, 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 I'm probably going to wax on about how it presents water a lot in this episode. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in talking about um, Tafiti and the sort of transformation of all that. Uh, and I hopefully we'll get to uh, Dwayne Johnson and his massive stick as well. That'll be fun. The Freudian in me can't wait. Fish, yeah, 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 absolutely. Sure. <laughs> Um, should we start by giving uh, listeners a sense of the plot then? Yes. Why don't you take this one, Chris? Uh, okay. Because, well, because uh, I'm getting my revenge. Well, so I mean, the the film is is certainly the way I was coming to it. I was thinking about it as a computer animated film, perhaps mm -hmm. rather than a rather than a Disney film. And so, um, a lot of computer animated films since Toy Story have been structured around specifically a, a journey narrative, and I'm interested in the role of the journey mm -hmm. narrative, um, in particular. Uh, a type of journey narrative that is um, unplanned or something happens that flushes a particular character from one location to another and so this this film I was immediately struck by the sense of journeying and and, um, and actually how the film is about we used to be journeyers we used to be people that moved and, and the uh, interest in movement and um, and this perhaps is replicated in the, the role of the, the water as you'll, you'll describe but um, it, yeah it kind of starts off I think it, it, it does the for me, it does the classic Disney, if you like, of telling the backstory um, through voiceover and explains the um, the relationship that Maui, who is the kind of protagonist or the the um, uh, male protagonist, I should say, he actually was going to be the protagonist oh, right. in the original treatment of the movie. Um, they pitched it to be called Maui, and uh, they took it to. Um, well, to John Laster at the time, and he comes off well in this story, but he hasn't come off well in other stories <laughs> since yeah. then. Um, but uh, where he said that this is an interesting world, but not an interesting character, go and find a better character, and this is when mm. they sort of rerouted it. So it's interesting that because that is the it would start with it would be called Maui twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, well, I think. Well, I think I suppose the 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 best thing we can say is that they did find a better character, mm. um, and actually both characters are very strong mm. and. Um, and so the, the introduction to the film is really the backstory of Maui is this sort of shape-shifting, animated in all kinds of ways, from the, the way that he um, kind of metamorphoses between certain kinds of uh, creatures, and at one point um, metamorphoses into a character from Frozen. Um, at one point, very briefly. I missed that. Uh, very briefly. Um, and, but it also sets up his um, kind of body and his physicality and um, how his body is covered with cell animation, which I do think is interesting mm -hmm. from an animation perspective, and the fact that the film is the first 
computer animated film to be produced by Ron Clements and John Musker, who'd previously worked in cell animation. Um, it's a nice nostalgic nod back to their origins in cell animation. Um, so it has this sort of preamble that talks about Maui, um, his relationship to a volcanic demon, the stealing of a particular stone, this kind of luminescent green stone. The heart. Um, the I heart. important. Um, to give back to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it fast forwards to mm-hmm. introduce Moana, first as a child, if I remember. Yeah. There's this incredible scene. And immediately sets up her relationship to water. Yeah, there's this incredible, I'm sure Kevin, you can say more about this than I can, but there's this amazing scene where you get this little, little infant uh, Moana walking out onto the sea, yeah. and there's this really atmospheric moment where um, I guess you could say she's chosen. I think there's an interesting thing about is she chosen by the water or does she choose the water and all this sort of stuff? And the water plays with her. Mm. Do you want to take it? Yeah, and there's kind of a cross section as well in which you can see sort of turtles swimming through yeah. the ocean. And it's you know it's it's fascinating right from the very offset that she is picked as the chosen one. She's mm. a girl and she's the chosen one. Um, and and then the film goes on to establish that. She's the daughter of the village chief. That she's she's not a princess, and the film's yep. very clear about that. Yes. Um, but she is a ruler, mm-hmm. and she it, she has a royal duty that she is expected to fulfil, and that is to stay on the island, um, in a society that her father, Chief Tui, wants to be incredibly unchanging, a very sort of conservative view mm-hmm. of what the world should be like. Yeah. Uh, which is represented by this pile of identical rocks that each <laughs> of the village elders as they ascend to uh, to leader of the tribe, places their stone on this pile. And we get the kind of opening musical number, which is, um, again, I think it's sort of a fantastic piece of songwriting from Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is all about stay here, stay on the island, stay where you are, be who you are, be what we tell you that you should be. Mm-hmm. Um, which sets up, I think, a, a series of binaries that completely structure the film between home, and beyond, so the horizon, she talks about the horizon, but the ocean, between the island and the ocean, between what it is to be a voyager or a journeyer mm-hmm. and what it is to be an islander, um, between safety and risk, between the group and the individual. And the, there's a sort of really complex interplay, I think, between the group and the individual that works throughout the film um, in terms of, you know, does one pursue one's own dream? And, and who, is one, who is she doing that for? Because, in fact, Although I think a lot of the Disney films, we see this kind of parental rebellion, like something like The Little Mermaid, for example, where she absolutely kind of bucks against what her father wants for her. Mm-hmm. In a sense, when Moana rebels against her father, which she does shortly after the opening number, it's precisely because she thinks she knows better what is best for the group. And she, she goes off in full intention of coming back once she's been able to save them, which I think, again, is really interesting. Well, that marks it out as slightly different to... So you mentioned The Little Mermaid, um, which is another Clements and Musker film. Aladdin, obviously, uh, Jasmine's rejection yeah. of um, by being behind the palace walls. But I think you're right that there's no sense that Jasmine's doing it um, because it's... Or, or certainly her motivations are, are different to Moana's, where Moana is very much... She needs to preserve the quality of life within within the island because it's kind of suffering this barren kind of these rotten coconuts and stuff like this and so she is acting on behalf of a collective in a way that is different to the intentions of her father and and you're right that the opening sets up the notes that i've got are lyrics about where you are no one goes beyond the reef um this issue of control that i guess is doubled in the way that moana controls the water the water controls her but she is being controlled by her father to some extent and she's mm-hmm. trying to kind of um, rebel against that but rebel in a way that shows that she's putting the group first in that sense. Mm. It's interesting as well um, in that there's this kind of weight of expectations and he repeats to her you know in time you'll come to love it you'll, yeah. you'll see it and the film in the cinema is preceded by this short called Inner Workings yes. um, in which she's a guy in an office and he's miserable at his office job and he hates it um, and, and he's the film in the work the inner workings are his different organs which are slowly kind of dying of sadness because he has to do this very banal job um and what happens in the end of this short film is he goes off and has a really nice lunch break and then he comes back to the office and carries on working so but it, but in a jollier way so again it sort of sets up this idea that um you can go off and you can do something fun but then you have to be reabsorbed back into the group sure, right yeah, yeah which i think is quite yeah cavell thinks about capitalism and democracy and the American dream quite a lot. And I think, I mean, you're the experts here, but I think Disney films do this a lot. Like, one can rebel to a certain extent, but then you need to be reabsorbed back in. 
But I think the way this film deals with... I mean, in a way, this film is very familiar as a Disney movie. In another way, it's not. And I think my sort of buzzwords for this podcast are going to be nuance. Um, in that I think this isn't a film of sort of... Normally, Disney goes, you know, here's the obstacle. They smash the obstacle and everything is reconciled. Here's, mm. This isn't a film about smashing. This is a film about reconciling. Yeah. And all these uh, opposites that we're setting up in these openings. It's interesting how they're presented because that opening number, the, the no one leaves, it's, um, it's, it, it encapsulates the problem of, of the thematic problem of the movie in that the song is both intoxicating and, and toe-tapping and kind of you go with it and you, and you tap yeah. along. And the lyrics are usually quite obnoxious and quite horrible. And there's this refrain of, and no one leaves. And it gets steadily more creepy the more they say it. And yet at the same time, some of the stuff they're talking about is actually quite admirable and, and quite sort of, you know, uh, you know, there's this refrain about the coconut and how we, we live one with the planet and we, you know, we use what we need and we don't do any more and we all work together. Um, and there's a, there's, a, you, there's a certain utopic quality to that. So the film isn't going... This isn't, you know, this quiet provincial uh, town as mm. AA, uh, aka Beauty and the Beast. This is, this is actually... There's some positives here. Um, and the film works with trying to reconcile the problems with it, with its positives. Mm. Um, and I don't know how that is in the movie so well, and, and partly it's just maybe it's the skill of the storytellers, but I think a lot of that is to do with the Polynesian sort of thematic it's drawing on, and this, this, this admiration of collectivity and environmentalism is embedded within the mythic structure of the story they're telling, yeah. so they have to present it in all its, you know, the, the, the devil is in the detail here. Um, I mean, I haven't done it, but it would be really interesting to go back and compare it to something like Pocahontas, I sure. think. Um, and you know, where actually westernization and modernization are seen as something that goes, they, they go hand in hand, mm. and in the end, she moves beyond that kind of native environment. And Moana does move beyond, but she doesn't. I think there's a, you're right, there's an oscillation, which is absolutely within that opening scene mm -hmm. and opening song, where on the one hand, you have these village elders going, we don't need a new song, we've got one song and we'll keep singing the same song over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as, as a brilliant song, and so why wouldn't you keep singing the same song over yeah. and over again? Um, and of course, she does come back to the island, but she takes the island then with her mm -hmm. as she goes on a journey and, and she places her rock on the tower, but it's not the same rock as everybody else has placed on the tower, it's a conch shell. So there's that kind of repetition and difference, which is absolutely embedded, I think, both in the in the music yeah. and in the film itself. We have a habit on this podcast of talking endlessly about the first five minutes for the entire podcast, and I'm going to not break that habit right now. So I also <laughs> think that's in in literally that opening prologue with with Moran and the water. In that, I think there is an ambiguity in there whether she is chosen by the sea or whether yeah. the sea cho mm. chooses her, and I think that's really important because I think if the sea chooses her, it evokes this trope that's very actually ingrained within Eurocentric fairy tales about sort of the supernatural being, the, the all-conquering, powerful being that controls the causality of the story, the genie, the, um, the, the wicked witch, the, the, the you know, all-powerful sorcerer. Yeah. If the water is the all-powerful sorcerer and Moana is the chosen one by the water, that kind of strips her of any agency or any sort of, um, you know, she, she's not the rock on top of the mountain, she's, or if she is, she's being pushed up there by something more powerful than her. But by the very fact it leaves it ambiguous, we're not getting that sort of, you know, individualism that's embedded within mythic structures in sort of grim fairy tales or things like that. We're getting a much more dialogue-friendly uh, collectivism to do with uh, the role of the human and the environment, the role of individuals and society, and, and the film's much richer for it, I think. Well, I, I, based on, on that, isn't it interesting that the villain, like I was thinking about the villain and how, uh, it's something like Pocahontas, that it, it's clear that Radcliffe is the villain and the way that it kind of structures and moves between um, John Smith, Pocahontas, Radcliffe, right? And it moves between these elements. And, but actually the villain is, in this film is not really, it, the film's not really interested in the idea of villainy until the last 10, 15 minutes or something. What it is interested in, and there are lots of scenes I noticed with Moran on her own, talking to herself and figuring things out for herself and building boats by herself. And, and so actually a lot of, it's very centered around her, her agency and her relationship to other people, to, to the natural world and to all these kinds of things. And so it doesn't, it, it avoids that structure of having to constantly cross cut between the hero's narrative and then the villain's narrative. And then the because the film's not really interested in the, it's about the, it's literally about the journey rather than the end point. It's, it's about her relationship to Maui and how he, she can kind of um, rehabilitate Maui as part of her process. Um, so I, I thought that was a really, that was a really nice, way that it played with 
its Disneyness because it didn't it didn't fall back on what could are often really obvious figures of villainy. Mm. Um, it played with it played with her as a kind of character, and, and to use your word, the kind of nuance. It took us from when she was a child being told this this story. Um, right the way through to how she kind of figures stuff out for herself and goes back and tells the others, and, and so I quite I quite like that how it placed her front and center without having to fall back on clearly marking out who the antagonist, where the resistance is going to come from. And I think I mean there's two things that I would want to say to that. Can, am I allowed to give spoilers? Yeah, yeah. yeah spoiler. Okay. So the first is to do with she was a ghost the whole time. <laughs> her relationship to others, because I would say that her primary relationship actually in questioning of the relationship is to herself. Yeah, yeah. And the question of who am I, she actually says that out loud yeah. several times throughout the film. Who am I? I am a girl who loves my island and the girl who loves the sea. It calls me. Okay, sorry, listeners, I'm going to just very quickly interrupt. I just wanted to talk a little bit about films and television and what happens, say hypothetically, somebody who is listening to the podcast would love to contribute uh, and they have a particular moment from one of their favourite fantasy or animated television shows or film. What could they do? Yeah, it's quite a good question, that. It's a great question. I suspect there's quite a lot of listeners out there that would like to take part in the conversations but feel a little bit intimidated, perhaps, they don't know where to start. Um, So what we've done is we've created a new uh, blog format for people to take part in, which is what we're just calling the sequence analysis. So what you can do is you can take... um, a sequence of a couple of minutes, whatever it might be, from a particular fantasy show, film that you're interested in, uh, an animated television program or feature film, or just something that interests you. It might not even be kind of an obvious choice. We love we love the obvious, but we also like the obscure. So if you're interested in doing a short kind of analysis of a particular moment, uh, do get in touch. You don't have to be uh, an academic, a scholar. You can be uh, maybe a practitioner. You can be a fan if there's a particular um, television program that you absolutely love or a film that you think no one's heard of but works really well um, do get in touch we'd love to hear from you what would you do as a sequence analysis Chris oh thanks for giving me an impossible question I would probably do something from I do Pixar related something kind of contemporary uh, or I might do like a really early um, kind of strange something kind of involves strange magic what about you yeah, I reckon I'd do something from like uh, an obscure that I'm really interested in in, pump, in uh, comics from the 70s. Maybe like one of those sort of, there's a lot of old underground fantasy films from then that I might write on. So all I would do is take a minute or two of the film that speaks to me that I find particularly interesting or exciting or anything like that and just try and put into words how it works or how, how it's functioning. If you'd like to know more about our sequence analysis, you can visit the website, uh, fantasy-animation.org, and you can also click through and have a look at some existing sequence analysis to see the kind of thing that we're looking for. You can also follow us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, or you can search for us on Facebook with the Fantasy Animation Research Network. to answer it by saying, I am Moana, I am the daughter Yeah, she repeats that line. Oh, and yeah. then in the film's, I think the film's best song, which, uh, in which she sort of proclaims, I am Moana, finally, she lists the qualities about herself. She's a girl that loves her island, she's a girl that loves the sea, she's a girl that loves her family, um, and these are the things that she values. And so she finally reaches a point where she can say who she is. And I, I really, it's mm. fascinating to me that you're so interested in the journey in these films because where, it, where that collides with Cavell for me is he talks about moral and ethical improvement being a journey where one zigzags and is constantly kind of taking steps towards a better self but never quite arriving there. And in fact, he gets that from Emerson. Um, and Emerson used the analogy of the, the voyage of the ship, which tanks. <laughs> so it seems that it fits wow. absolutely beautifully. But the villain, I think, is the most nuanced question of all yeah. in the film because there's actually a prologue before the prologue, which is narrated by the grandmother of yeah. the film, which sets up this idea of 
of Tefiti as Mother Earth, as this woman that gives birth to the world, who is then violated yeah. effectively by Murray with his giant fish hook. Yep. Yep. Who we see Easy him Alex. kind of <laughs> yeah. penetrate her and pull something out, mm. and that's her heart. And and he's not a nice character throughout most of the film. He's he's a kind of a walking ego. Mm-hmm. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the film, Tafiti, we, we discover that Tekar, this kind of terrifying lava monster who is all rage and completely voiceless, um, isn't. It's the, I think it's a kind of a really cool twist that I didn't see coming at all the first time. We discover that Tekar is in fact Tefiti, mm-hmm. who's been transformed by this act of violation into this fury. She's like Scylla in Greek legend or mm-hmm. Philomel, like just a pure vengeance and rage and infertility. And and then Moana approaches her and she sees something and she realises who Tafiti is or who she really is as the film says and there's no fight, there's no conflict there's just an acknowledgement again to use a very Cavalian term and a recognition of, the, of a woman's suffering at the hands of a male brute and it's so powerful I think, I mean that moment in the film really shook me and I'm sort of amazed that it hasn't been discussed more in terms of being a film that is about kind of rape and about about violation and about post-traumatic stress in a sense and I have found a couple of personal anecdotes online where people have said you know something happened to me and I'm watching this film has really shown me how I feel as kind of reflecting back of my own suffering um but to have the, the, kind of the question of who is the villain in that case sort mm. of it's up for grabs it very much oscillates yeah. a lot of European fairy tales are about uh, women being uh, punished or violated by men um, and then the solution is another man comes in and saves it Sle- uh, Snow White mm. Sleeping Beauty things like that uh, and in this you're quite like you're quite right that the film sort of sets up a twist which is that you you sort of um fall into the traditional viewing habits and you think okay the, so what we need is Maui to go and use his massive fish hook to beat the monster to death uh yeah well, I, I, um, I, I and, and that's yeah. that's not what happens i think and i think what that you discover maybe maybe in the first viewing, or at least you know, the more the film works its spell on you, and you know, this is a Disney movie. I think repeat viewings and and the power of repeat viewings is important. Mm-hmm. Is that Maui's, if anything, the antagonist of the movie, and Maui's the villain. Maui's the thing that keeps stopping the plot going forward, and Maui's the thing that stops the ultimate resolution, and Maui's the cause of all the the problems, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, male male narcissism, which again links back to that thing about the supernatural being, is that supernatural being is often psychoanalyzed as uh, sort of a a narrative trope that is the monument of narcissism. What what is a genie but everything but a, but an ego raging? Yeah, it's a, mm. it's a it's a creature that can make the world exactly as they want it to be, rather than reconcile with the world as it is. Whilst that little, I mean, I'm actually just thinking about it, getting quite emotional thinking about it. That moment where she just walks through the water and hands her her heart back. Everything goes quiet. Everything goes still, and it's peaceful reconciliation is the ultimately the thing mm. that that solves the problem of everything. Because I thought the film was going to set up. So when Maui returns, and I thought, okay, so I see what's happened here. She said that she could do it on her own. She can't. She says, I thought, you know, I thought we could do it. I thought I could do it. He then disappears because he's having one of his thirty crises of confidence that he has in the film. I'm going to disappear. Then he because returns. She's castrated him by breaking his fish yeah. hook. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he's, got, he's got one good hit left in him. <laughs> um, and then, and then ultimately he returns, and I thought, okay, so here we go. And then he says something like, okay, it's all yours. Like you go on ahead. It's all yours. Um, and so the, what's interesting is that the film is trying to deal with two ideas of what it means to have a change of heart. Because Maui's is very simplistic and very superficial and very, you know, it's part of it feeds into his bravado. What the film's really interested in is the change of heart from Takar to Tafiti, a literal change of heart mm. that he has stolen. So, yeah, I, 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 Maui was somebody who never quite got to be the character that, maybe that's a good thing, that he, he was still a bit of a, you know, a narcissistic yeah. And I was interested in himself, literally himself, and the way that he he has to earn the way that he looks. Yeah, the, and the only bum note of the film for me actually is is after that sequence where Maui gives this very half-assed apology yes. and sort of goes, "Oh, sorry, you can have my fish my fish hook back now," 
and and the, the phallus is restored and everyone yeah. can go on with their business again. Um, and I, I, in my vast appreciation of the film, mm. I feel like that falls a little bit flat, or it's kind of glib in the way it treats that final um, apology, which should be bigger than it is. Really. It's a bit have your cake and eat it too, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Although I, I do quite like the final moment we see uh, Maui in the movie, where he sort of appears as the hawk, flies by Moana, and keeps going. In a way, it reminds me a little bit of sort of uh, Ethan in the Searchers, right? Sort of the, the damaged male that can't come back to civilization because he's still dealing with his own. Uh, yeah. Narcissism, but you're right. I think that moment is a little bit uh, too cutesy. But also, Tafiti looks like Moana. Are we, is yes. This, is yes. this just me? <laughs> yeah. But I think that uh, is important, right, in terms of the dialogue going on there. In that, in that we have this goddess figure that is a mirror image of our protagonist, uh, different but the same. Mm. Um, it's all I have on that, really. But it's interesting. Uh, yeah. No. I, I, yeah. I, I thought exactly the same, and I thought, okay, so this is the character design here in service of a kind of uh, female-female relationship. I feel like certainly I felt more strongly about the relationship between uh, Tafita and Moana than I did Anna and Elsa in Frozen. That always seemed very that one. That one achieved its female-female relation through the playful manipulation of the Disney formula and so forth. This one felt a little bit more intelligent in the way that it was. It was negotiating its relationships. Um, I still have an ambivalent. I, I will watch it. Watch it again. I do think it's better than some of the recent Disney movies where the villain is kind of quite telegraphed and signposted straight from the mm. straight from the off um, and follows a very rigid formula. This one I thought was kind of refreshing. I mean, it, it, it felt a little bit like a replaying of Aladdin. I was I was thinking the sea as the magic carpet. The magic carpet is in the film as well. There's a moment where the magic carpet does appear. So the magic carpet was the sea, and then you have uh, hi hi hey hey is the hey hey is Apu. The design of Takar at the end reminded me of Jafar when he's mm. like a snake. Um, see how snake-like I can be. There were certain, but I, that's not a, that's perhaps not a bad thing. But it I was, think I mean maybe that's precisely as we've been saying, the good thing is that it, it does play on a series of expectations that we have about where a Disney film is going to take us and and because it doesn't just look like Jafar, it reminded me a little bit of um, Ursula as well mm -hmm. in The Little Mermaid and even going back to the um, Maleficent mm -hmm. yep. there's Sleeping a sort of beauty. similar sculpting of the face there and so I think we're ready to, to dislike this very ciphered in villain and then it becomes clear why it's been ciphered in in such a way and I read, there's a very interesting piece by Caroline Cedar, I think it's pronounced, or Cider, um, specifically about Moana as, as not a fighter, but as somebody who is empathetic, so who leads as a woman through a mm. series of female qualities. So instead of being someone like Mulan, who has to yeah, adopt masquerade, and, you know, yeah. masquerade as a man, or you know, even Pocahontas or Katniss in The Hunger Games or something, who or Buffy, you know, that the, the way in which a female becomes a hero is by effectively taking on this kind of very aggressive, what are coded traditionally as masculine set of traits, that Moana deals with the villain um, and with her entire set of problems through observation, through compassion, through empathy, through noticing the little details that nobody else in the film is, is noting. And even if you think about how she finally managed to kind of tame Moe, it's by noticing a tiny sort of section of his tattoos, which yeah. gives away it's the kind of chink in his armor, really, that then allows him to manipulate his ego. So, I, in a way, I think you have to set up all of those traditional Disney ideas yeah. in order to come at them from this very, very different point of view. And the moment, the moment that sort of the epiphany that I had with my daughter was that she said to me after the film, "Sometimes people aren't bad; they're just hurt." And for a three-year-old to come out of a film, I think, have yeah. that response to it. Mm -hmm. And then she says it to me when I'm being really cross. <laughs> Terrible. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Disney. Yeah. Cheers, yeah, Moana. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the, the message of diplomacy and female empowerment as something that doesn't have to look like male empowerment is really striking. And, and I, I flex, I'll add flexibility and malleability to sort of the, the qualities of Moana, and that has something to do with sort of uh, the water as a character. In, in that, you know, she's she's a character that's quite unfixed. She, I like what you said about Cavell's ethics there. In that, it's it's always unchanging. Mm. It's always unfixed. And and it, and there isn't this telegraph. She has learnt this. It's just sort of a series of problems she's overcome, and and 
has adapted to, to situations as they are presented, not necessarily consistently. Sometimes she's very bold and, and uh, fierce, and that helps her defeat those coconut warrior yeah. things that look like they exist for a particular video game uh, yep. level Mad or whatever. Mad Max coconut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mad Max meets Minions. Mo Moana Fury Road. Um, yeah. Well, that uh, is a, that is the ref that's one of the reference points for the film, Fury Road. It's a deliberate reference. Oh, wow, yeah, I didn't yeah, yeah. know that. Terrific. Uh, the things you learn in academic conversation. Um, yeah, and, and the water is an interesting... Is the water a character in the film? Because the way it's animated is that sometimes it's very very um, anthropomorphic and limbs almost come out of it, and other times it's it's like the water. It's it's sort of it it has no fixed identity. Um, and there's an interesting article by Olivia Monnet who talks about animation as being able to articulate something she calls the feminine sublime, which is the idea that animation enacts a sense of being that isn't fixed and determined, and therefore is outside of fixed structure. Um, and I think there's something in that in the water. The, the water is unfixed, it's organic, it's natural, but at the same time it's powerful and strong and uh, and unchanging but always changing and, and the way the film allows that to be in dialogue with Moana is, is, is part of her character I think uh, and it's done through the sort of very hyper-realist spectacular yeah. animation. I mean I wouldn't, it's, it's interesting because uh, when we talk of landscape and city spaces and um, non-human entities we sort of sound the, the, the setting was almost a character in and of itself mm -hmm. no it's not a character in and of itself the, the, the point of it is this is not a character but it is a place where characters are so in the case of the water no I never felt it was a character mm. um, it was never a, 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 a character in the way that, that Moana is a character and that is really important this is not like a character but it has that kind of affinity with her um, and so I think the yeah her, her and I like the idea of, of her it's not an end point that she's going to find something and that will be the thing that transforms. Uh, her knowledge seems to, and her emotion and her nuance literally comes in waves and sometimes it's really strong and sometimes it's not. And I quite liked, so I think it was her affinity to the water. Uh, the water, as you say, is very hyper-realistic and, and has that kind of push-pull relationship between looking like water but also wanting to, animators wanting it to look computery to maintain the, the sort of visual pleasure. And then certainly some of the stuff I've read around the water, um, there, was, there were deliberate um, kind of shifts away from how water is being presented in in Finding Nemo, Finding Dora, it says the water needs to do something else. It needs to be animated in different ways. Um, and so, yeah, I thought it's kind of luminescence in the way that it Moana works with it, but I never felt it was a character, and it was actually really important to me that it wasn't a character because I, want, I didn't want to be invested in the fate of it. But what I wanted to do was to think about her relationship to the water and how they can, they can communicate. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah. I, I didn't feel it was a character, but I felt it was... It was important to the construction and the nuance of our characters in the film. It's very responsive, it's responsive yeah. more than proactive yeah. actually, isn't it, thinking about it, that it tends to kind of mm. do or be there for her when she needs it in the same way that her grandmother is. It's, it's one of the kind of various mm -hmm. figures that surround her that serve as kind of mentors or guiding points or aids. Even Hey Hey yeah. serves his purpose at one point. Um, but that isn't controlling her. I mean, this is where my knowledge of fantasy is really limited. Um, but, uh, you know, I was interested in this idea of what you were saying about, about Black Panther and the kind of the universe that controls everything. Because as we've been talking, it strikes me that nobody seems to have total agency in the film. The water only does so much, mm -hmm. and it's not a character anyway. Um, Moe is a demigod. He's not a god. He, <laughs> he can't get himself off the island. He needs Moana to appear with this boat because Murray can do anything but float, um, <laughs> to get off, to get off and, and, and get his hook back. Mm. Uh, Tafiti, obviously, despite being kind of the mother of the earth, when her fertility or her reproductive powers are stopped, she needs Moana to do something for her. Mm. And Moana needs help all the way through. So maybe this comes back to some of what you were saying early on, which is that it is about the individual, but, but it's also about kind of this notion of symbiosis and 
no no man is an island mm-hmm. without wishing to be too no 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 I think because right. the, the classic Disney film is you know uh, you get what you dream you dream dream something and make it come true mm. individual power uh, force of will I mean it's not even just Disney it's the classic sort of Hollywood paradigm it's right Donald it's Donald Trump yeah exactly it's the sort of it's the it's the arch individualism of it all whilst this mm. is somehow and like you know this isn't a collective movie but it's a movie that at least is interested in a reality of how one is an individual in a in an intersubjective sphere where your actions have consequences on other people and you have responsibility for other people and kinship with other people and and she one of her fueling things she is an adventurer and she loves the sea and also but she's doing it partially at least because she loves her island and she loves her people and she feels a responsibility as a ruler for this this tribe to do something about the peril they're in mm. so it, yeah it's not you know it's not i'm wishing to be uh out of this place it's i want to do something for this place but that requires me to go and adventure and all that stuff yeah i hadn't thought about there is no overarching magic control going on here if anything the only the only force is the environment just the forces of the environment and and something about the sort of uh, the way in which uh, fire, earth, water—we're getting Aristotelian here—but uh, you know, or <laughs> Captain Planet, one of the two—play uh, into one another. Absolutely, yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, the film that I quite often think it would make a really lovely partner yeah. pairing with is Darren Aronofsky's Mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. I know it sounds no, nuts, no, no. but in terms of kind of again, like. Male violation, female victimhood, the questions of kind of the suffering earth and Gaia, you know, it, we, we use different words for this in different cultures, but I think, and again, kind of the, the relationship, which can be a bit thorny, of gender and fertility and, and violence and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I think they're both all there in both mm-hmm. films, and that, that you could get a really productive reading out of putting the two of them together. That is a double bill I would love to organise. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, I'd really... I might that. not be sharing that one to my... Maybe not just yet. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Uh, any last-minute thoughts? I think I've I've said what I need to say, Chris. Well, no. I was thinking of this idea, this sort of Disney identity, and 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 what we've talked about with regards to Moana, and there's not being this overarching. Very famously, there's there's the I want songs, the Disney I want song that occurs often after about fifty minutes, um, where. So this this could be uh, Hercules, where um, Megara, I won't say that I'm in love, mm. uh, part of your world, Hunchback of Notre Dame, I'm out there. Um, there's very regularly after 50 minutes, there is uh, an idea or a musical number that articulates the I want. In this film, it comes slightly earlier, kind of how far I'll go. I'll go. What does happen at 50 minutes instead? is the exchange between Maui and Moana where Maui says if you wear a dress and have an animal sidekick you're a princess Mm. and so at 50 minutes it's Mm. rather than the okay so now we're into full Disney mode what we're getting after 50 minutes is a kind of couple of lines of dialogue that signal the anti-Disney sentiment of the film and so the film is it's an interesting one because it kind of it is a Disney film and it is made as it is produced by um, but it has all that we talked about this before the amount like chess pieces it has the chess pieces and it plays the Disney game but it kind of moves them in different it moves them in different ways and they get checked and removed quite early on from the game and that, that's what I that's what I liked about the film maybe maybe I do like the film maybe I do like <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's uh, maybe that's the thing I thought it was interesting you know Mao is a character in the way that his body is a kind of articulation of, of animation um, I was also thinking about sincerity how sincere is this to a how much does it deconstruct? It's very easy to sort of say Disney now deconstructed its own mythology and that's part of where Frozen gets its kind of cachet from is that it is actively deconstructing the princess narrative and the, the kind of um, Prince Charming figure. Um, and so actually this film didn't deconstruct it as much as I thought it was going to be. It's quite sincere. It gestures to Disney films, but it doesn't let that deconstructive rhetoric take it over and it just becomes like a parody of itself. Yeah, it's not cynical at all. No. It's a film, I think, quite the opposite. And, and you know, just to go back to Alex's idea of nuance that I want song isn't actually an I want song yeah. it's a um, we need song <laughs> it calls me yeah. this is this is something that's set up very early on that she's she's put in this position where she's being pulled in two different directions between out there and the home and the ocean calls me and it's only right towards the end of the film that she says the voice isn't out there it's inside me she comes to the realisation that she has to be self-reliant she has to trust her own judgement rather than listen to her father or listen to the ocean Mm-hmm. Um, but but to, to find what it is that she wants and where she will be and who she will be. Um, and so I think 
that there's a lack of fixity in her character at the beginning of the film that maybe differs from something yeah. like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, where he's very clear what it is that he wants. Yeah. And he or Belle in Beauty and the Beast, and that that kind of outsider status is really important to those characters that they're mavericks or rebels or they don't quite fit. She doesn't not fit. She just hasn't quite worked out how to. Yeah. bring all of these various aspects of her character into a kind of peaceful resolution. So all those elements to her character and her industriousness and her, all of her qualities as a woman aren't, aren't clearly signposted as being in service of this end goal that is being mm. flagged up as something that will be obtained or not obtained. Or And that's what I really liked when she gets all the way to, to, to put the, the um, heart and, and the camera kind of pulls back and she's like, well, she's got, he's gone, she's gone. And I was like, what's going on here? Um, and it was just those little misdirections. And this, and maybe that goes back to the kind of jaggedness of that when you were saying about kind of um, the jagged journey and the uh, um, analogy of the, the ship. Like, it's, there seemed to be a lot of full starch. Like, she attempts to go across the bat and then gets washed up. And then, and so there's, it's a lot about the industriousness of a narrative that is pulling her in different directions. And about it being okay to fail. Yeah. I think, like, for all of the characters, yeah. even Murray. There's, you know, they fail and they get back up again and they go again and that's, that's beautiful, mm -hmm. I think. And, it, and ultimately for me, it's a, it's a film about two women, both Moana and Tafiti, who kind of find mm. their voices are restored to themselves um, through this process of, kind of mutual healing, which is... Just, just a quick flag up, two minutes to go. Grandmother, love the grandmother. Yeah. Like that, that, that's a really important female relationship. Actually, I thought that was a really nice when she pulls her in close and says go. Like that was a, that was the bit where I was kind of, it, I was really in, I was in the movie, I was in the movie by that point. Um, and then she appears as a, as a fantasy. She appears as an apparition um, later on. And so the the female relationships are the. You look at the poster and it's a film about Maui and Moana, but then you watch the movie and. Mao is what he is, and what's really interesting is yes, it's Tafiti and it's Moana, it's Moana and her, her grandmother, and it's that those three things um, that I, I really like. I thought the, the grandmother was yeah. I didn't want to didn't want us to end this podcast without me flagging out the role of the no, grandmother. No, and Hey Hey's great too. So yes. uh, so I think that's all covered. Um, Catherine, if people wanted to check out your work or find your voice in the world, uh, where would you suggest they uh, look for you? Um, so the, the book on Stanley Kafal, which I finally managed to get past the children's illness and finish, um, is due out with Ivy Taurus next spring. Okay, so look out um, for that. So look out for that. And Mo Moana isn't in there, but I, th right. I suspect that this will be forming the basis of an article at some point. I have things that I need to get out into the world about Moana. Sure, terrific. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, you can follow us as always at FanAnim Research, F-A-N-I-N-I-M Research on Twitter. We have a Facebook group and of course there's the website fantasy-animation.org. Please get in contact and leave some comments, um, Moana-based or otherwise. <laughs> um, hey, hey, tell me about Hey, Hey the Chicken. That would be great. Um, until then, uh, thanks for it, Catherine. Thank you, Chris. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Time to find